the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 14, November 1966. An expression increasingly stressed in some conservative quarters has a rather strange history. Quote, forgotten country, unquote. We are told sums up our cause. Now certainly the phrase calls to mind an apparently noble purpose, but is it entirely a wise slogan? And how has it been used in the past? Some years ago, a country in the midst of war summoned people to sacrifice their savings, gold and silver, time and effort, quote, for God and country, unquote. People loyally lined up and cooperated. For some who gave heavily, iron medals were awarded for their services. Another crisis situation, inflation. The citizenry were summoned to rally to their country's welfare by surrendering their gold and silver, including their wedding rings, quote, for God and country, unquote. We can agree that these were bad uses of the phrase, especially since enemy powers were involved. Is the phrase a sound one in the right hands? To answer this question, it is necessary to examine the nature of biblical ethics of morality. The demand of humanism and of its child's socialism is for a universal ethics, In universal ethics, we are told that even as the family gave way to the tribe and the tribe to the nation, so the nation must give way to a one-world order. All men must treat all other men equally. Partiality to our family, nation, or race represents a lower morality, we are told, and must be replaced by the, quote, higher, unquote, morality of a universal ethics. But biblical morality is not a universal ethics, It does not have one code for all men. Where mankind is concerned, biblical morality has three separate kinds of moral requirements. First, there is the law of God for the family. The family has a high and central position in biblical law. There are four laws that pertain to the family in the Ten Commandments alone. Quote, Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. Unquote. Deuteronomy 5.16 The seventh commandment forbids adultery. Deuteronomy 5.18 And the tenth, covetousness of our neighbor's wife, home, and possessions. Deuteronomy 5.21 The eighth commandment, Deuteronomy 5.19, forbids theft and protects property. And in biblical law, Property is seen as one of the central mainstays of family life. 
In the New Testament, it is emphasized that a man's first human obligation is towards his family. Quote, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Unquote. 1 Timothy 5.8 A man's first and basic responsibility in the realm of his relationships towards his fellow men is towards his own family. He cannot put them on the same level as all mankind. The consequence of a universal ethics can only be communism. In a universalistic morality, all men must be given the same love, support, and consideration as we give to our family. It is impossible to do this without total communism. But biblical morality insists that the family, which must be grounded on Christian faith, must come first. A man is required to love and support his wife. He is forbidden to love and support any other women. He must support and discipline his children. He cannot do this for other children. A universal ethics is a communistic ethics. The second area of law and biblical morality deals with our brethren in the faith, our relationship with true believers. We are, with true believers, members of a larger family, the household of Jesus Christ. We have an obligation of love to our, quote, brethren, unquote, in the faith. The early church established the order of deacons and a deacon's fund for the care of widows or orphans who had no family, Acts 6, 1 through 6. Christians share a common faith and a common destiny. They believe in the Bible and thus have in common a standard of law. They are a community. We can very quickly feel a sense of kinship with true believers whom we have scarcely met because we share a common perspective, yet a neighbor whom we see daily is in reality a stranger to us because his every belief is hostile to ours. God requires us to be partial to that which is our own to give equal favor, support, or attention to that which is hostile to us is to destroy ourselves. It is to subsidize the opposition. The third level of biblical law deals with the rest of the world, with unbelievers. Here we are to, quote, walk honestly toward them that are without, unquote. Thessalonians 4.12 An example, our behavior towards unbelievers must be honorable. We must love our neighbor and our enemy, which means giving him the God-given privileges of the second table of the law. The Bible repeatedly identifies, as in Romans 13, 8-10, love of others as, quote, the fulfilling of the laws, unquote, thou shalt not kill. In example, respect all men's right to life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In example, respect the sanctity of every home. Thou shalt not steal. In example, all man's property is under God's law and safeguard of law. Thou shalt not bear false witness. In example, respect all men's reputations. Thou shalt not covet. In example, respect these things in thought as well as in word and deed. Works of mercy and emergencies are to be extended to all men as the law and the parable of the Good Samaritan make clear. But our Christian family comes first, then our fellow believers, and last, the world at large. Quote, For God and country, unquote, where does our country come in? We serve God, not only directly in worship, but by our faithfulness in every area of our life. 
by our family life, our relationship to the world. We serve Him by our integrity in our vocation and in our citizenship. We have dealt with our moral relationship to men, to family, fellow believers, and to the world. What about institutions such as church and state? Both institutions are ministries of God. The church is the ministry of the Word, the sacraments, and of true discipline. Without these, there is no true church, even though an institution may call itself a church. The state is the ministry of justice, Romans 13, through 6 Its function is to provide godly law and order. The obligation of believers is to be an obedient citizen insofar as the state does not require what is contrary to our duty to God and our responsibilities under God. For, quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, unquote, Acts 5.29. The citizen must pay taxes and bear arms in his country's defense. He must be honest and industrious, and he ought to pray for those having authority. More than that cannot be required of him. Where does the state come in? Certainly it does not have the same status as our family. No man can morally sacrifice his family to his country. This is no more than a modern form of human sacrifice to a false god. Our family must come before church work and before patriotic work. The moral foundations of society are in the Christian family. It cannot be sacrificed to anything else, to either church or state. If we say the country is a bigger and more important thing and must come first, the liberal can say that the world is bigger and has priority over the nation and the family. Then where does the state come in? Where does our country rank in moral importance? This depends on the country. If it is a Christian country, it has a rank placing it in the realm of our duties to our fellow believers. The state has entered into the ranks of the faithful. But if the country or church or school has departed from the faith, if it has officially and practically denied God and His Word, then it is a part of the world of unbelief, and honesty requires that we treat it as such. Does this mean that we stand by and let our country go down the drain? By no means. By no means at all. All the more zealously for the Lord's sake and for our children's sake, we need to reclaim our country. But we must have a sense of proportion. Some churches absorb so much of their members' quote, time for the Lord, unquote, supposedly, that family life disintegrates. But family life is the first area of godly responsibility. And some patriots are ready to sacrifice their husbands and children, quote, for the cause, unquote. But their first area of responsibility is to their husband and children. The same holds true for many men. How many, many people spend years trying to win radicals over to conservatism and then wake up to find their children have become themselves radical. Certainly the schools have a share of the blame, but the first responsibility is parental. Should they quit their work? Again, by no means. But their work must have a sense of proportion. If our work is truly, quote, for God, unquote, it will be primarily constructive in every area in the home, church, community, school, and country. To be, quote, for God, unquote, means to establish godly homes, Christian schools, Christian study groups, 
godly political action, godly businesses geared to sound economics, and so on. It does not mean merely reacting to the opposition. It will be for the family, for the faith, for the country, and for the school, because it is, quote, for God, unquote. There is much to commend in the phrase, quote, for God and for country, unquote, but there is much against it. It is a handy phrase for the enemy to use in the future with the help of apostate churches. Quote, for God and country, unquote. Quote, for God and the fatherland, unquote. Or, quote, for God and the Soviet Union, unquote. As apostate Russian churchmen say. But as Joshua said, quote, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, unquote. Joshua 24, 15. But even more militates against the phrase, quote, for God and country, unquote. With all due respect to the dedicated and fine patriots who use it, the term makes an equation where no equality exists. The phrase has a ring of truth, but it will not stand up to investigation. It joins the absolute God with a relative, the country. We cannot link a relative and an absolute together. We cannot call for service to quote God in church, unquote, or to quote God in school, unquote, because the service God requires and the claims God has on us far transcend the claims of church, country, or school. The essence of statism and totalitarianism is that it makes the relative absolute. It makes the state into another God. It gives to the state power and authority which rightfully belongs to God only. The state today is claiming too much. In the United States, the purpose of the Founding Fathers was to limit severely the powers of the federal government by means of the Constitution. The Federal Union had to be strong enough to avoid impotence, but it could not claim powers which infringed on God's sovereignty and man's liberty under God. The foundation of liberty they saw in the faith. As George Washington said, quote, Let it be simply asked, Where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? Unquote. Patrick Henry said that subversive and revolutionary forces from Europe were seeking to destroy, quote, the great pillars of all government and of social life. I mean virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. If we lose these, we are conquered, fallen indeed, unquote. How many men today can equal Patrick Henry's dedication to his country? But Patrick Henry was a great American because of the greatness of his faith, character, and intelligence, and because he brought a sense of proportion and dedication to all things. Our Pledge of Allegiance says it best, quote, one nation under God, unquote. This is the true perspective, one to which we must give allegiance and service as well. Let us serve family, school, church, and country under God and only under God. No cause can rightfully claim more of us. Chalcedon Report number 15.
December 1966. Concern about the Bill of Rights is greatly in evidence these days and in many quarters. The Bill of Rights should particularly concern Christians since it is a product of biblical Christianity. The idea of a Bill of Rights is unknown in other religions and civilizations. The state of California has now issued a book, the first printing in mimeographed form of a, quote, source book for teachers, unquote, entitled The Bill of Rights. The book, copyrighted in 1966 by the California State Department of Education, has a favorable introduction by Max Rafferty, Superintendent of Public Instruction. The cover of the book bears this notice, quote, Preliminary Printing by California Teachers Association, unquote. On page 10, we are told that, quote, The State Board of Education acknowledges with gratitude the gift of $30,000 from the Constitutional Rights Foundation of Los Angeles. This gift, used for payment of operational expenses, has made this publication possible, unquote. Two years ago, Dr. Rafferty refused to help judge a Bill of Rights essay contest sponsored by This Rights Foundation because three directors of the foundation had been named as supporters of communist fronts in reports from the State Senate Committee on Un-American Activities. No authors are listed for the source book, but an advisory panel is given. The source book is very carefully researched and very carefully written. A summary of the major sections of the table of contents best gives a perspective on the work. Part 1. Judicial Review, the 14th Amendment and Federalism. Section A. Judicial Review. Section B. The 14th Amendment and Federalism. Part 2. Equal Protection of the Law. Section A. Voting. Section B. Education. Section C. Housing. Section D. Employment. Part 3. Criminal Due Process. Section A. The Criminal Trial. Section B. Law Enforcement. Part 4. Freedom of Expression. Section A. Seditious Speech. Section B. Obscenity. Section C. Modes of Regulation of Speech. Part 5. Freedom of Religion. Section A. History. Section B. The Free Exercise of Religion, Section C, The Establishment Clause. In terms of its given purpose, the source book is an excellent summary of the present legal state of the Bill of Rights, as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, and as far as the great society is concerned. We are given a careful statement of the civil rights position with respect to voting, integration, education, and federal aid, housing, and so on but we are given very little about the Bill of Rights as such. Instead of being a study, as the title would indicate, of the Bill of Rights, it is rather a study of the progress and law of the Civil Rights Revolution. Had the book been titled something like The Present Legal Status of the Civil Rights Movement, it would have been an able and acceptable work. But it is mistitled. It is not a study of the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights and the Supreme Court interpretations are two different things. A former Assistant Attorney General of the United States, Charles Warren, wrote in the Supreme Court in United States History, Volume 3, page 470F, quote, However the Court may interpret the provisions of the Constitution, 
It is still the Constitution which is the law and not the decision of the court, unquote. Another writer stated some time ago, quote, Any citizen whose liberty or property is at stake has an absolute constitutional right to appear before the court and challenge its interpretation of the Constitution, no matter how often they have been promulgated upon the ground that they are repugnant to its provisions. When the bar of the country understands this and respectfully but inexorably requires of the Supreme Court that it shall continually justify its decisions by the Constitution and not by its own precedents, we shall gain a new conception of the power of our constitutional guarantees. Unquote. Everett A. Abbott, Justice and the Modern Law, 1913. It is important to know what the Court has said about the Bill of Rights and how it has interpreted it. But it is even more important to know what the Bill of Rights has to say and what it meant to the framers of it. Unfortunately, however, besides giving basically a modernistic interpretation to portions of the Bill of Rights, other portions are simply bypassed as though they were non-existent. Thus, Amendment 2 states, quote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. This right is simply dropped out of consideration. The same is true of Amendment 3, concerning the quartering of soldiers in private homes. Amendment 4 through 8 are treated in Part 3 as a piece. Amendment 9, quote, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people, unquote. A very basic provision is also bypassed. The same is true of Amendment 10, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Unquote. Amendments 13, 14, and 15 are included as part of quote, the expanded Bill of Rights, unquote, and they are apparently regarded as invalidating Amendments 9 and 10. The source book admits, however, that the intention of these amendments had exclusive reference to the ex-slaves. The original purpose of the Bill of Rights was to protect the citizens and the states from the power of the federal government. This is obliquely noted by the source book. Quote, One of the goals of the framers of the Constitution was to establish a government which was strong enough to enforce the law, yet not so strong as to threaten individual liberty. Unquote. Page 3, 1. This is true, but more than that, the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to impose restraints on the federal government and to protect the citizenry in its God-given immunities. The fear was of federal power. The citizens of the several states were expected to protect themselves from the states through state constitutions and state Bill of Rights. The first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution were imposed on the federal government by the people to protect themselves from that particular form of civil government. The one thing neither the Constitution nor the Bill of Rights even remotely envisioned was that the federal government and its Supreme Court would become the protectors of the people 
from the states and from each other. What was once the feared big bad wolf has now been made the big good protector. The American people in 1787 were not afraid of each other. They knew one another's frailties and injustices. This civil and criminal laws were designed to keep the people in check. But who could protect the people from big government? The object of the Constitution was to provide sufficiently strong civil government without creating too big a power. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights strictly limited the scope of the Federal Union by checks and balances, divisions of powers, separation of powers, the express powers doctrine, and prohibitions placed on civil government. But now, quote, the great society, unquote, declares that the best guardian of our liberties is the very power the Bill of Rights distrusted, and the source book expounds this new doctrine. Quote, rights, unquote, now mean equality, integration, fair housing, and whatever else, quote, the great society, unquote, tells us our rights are. What are our rights now? They are whatever the federal government decides is man's necessary fulfillment. And all man's, quote, rights, unquote, in, quote, the great society's, unquote, definition are things which do not interfere with the state's interest and necessity. For an example of this, notice what Justice Goldberg had to say in Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, when the court, by a 7-2 majority, invalidated a law prohibiting the use of contraceptives by married people. Goldberg defended the right of marital privacy, but at the same time limited it by saying, quote, Surely the government, absent a showing of compelling state interest, could not decree that all husbands and wives must be sterilized after two children have been born to them, unquote. But what this implies is that if there is, quote, a showing of a compelling state interest, unquote, the state could decree such a sterilization. Is this what the source book calls, quote, the court's function in protecting individual liberty under the Constitution? Page 1 through 15. Is this expressive of, quote, the very nature of the court's role in protecting individual liberty from government encroachment? Unquote. The Bill of Rights was written because the states and citizens of the newly formed United States pointed the finger at that federal government as the threat to their liberties. Today, the federal government and the U.S. Supreme Court, far bigger than the people of 1787 ever imagined it could be, point the finger at landlords, private associations, individuals, and various small organizations as the threat. Conservatives in particular are denounced by politicians as a menace to liberty. In other words, the wolves are insisting that the Bill of Rights was written to protect them from the assault of lambs and that it therefore cannot be used by lambs. The new textbook, Land of the Free, by John Coy, John Hope Franklin and Ernest R. May is written from this same perspective. The meaning of American history is seen as fulfilled in the civil rights movement. The heroes of American history are therefore people like these, Edward Hicks, Quack Walker, George Guess, Harriet Tubman, Marianne Hafen, Anthony Burns, Frederick Douglass, Kate Shelley, Arthur Goldberg, 
Ishi Jacob Rees, Jane Adams, Dante Sacco, and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, Charles Drew, Linda Brown, and others. But more than these persons, the real meaning of American history is in the drive towards equality and the civil rights revolution. What is the answer to these things? Shall we continue to hope in the public schools to protect us? The state schools are socialist schools. Can we expect them to teach anything other than socialism? Socialism in education means the state control of education, just as socialism in business is the state control of business, either by regulation or takeover. Can you expect the wolves to protect you against themselves? The course of action with respect to creeping socialism is to destroy it where it can be destroyed and to restrain it if no more can be done at the moment. The only logical conclusion of the present concept of civil rights is communism. It demands, quote, full equality, unquote. And where does equality stop? Economic, political, cultural, racial, personal, and every other kind of equality is demanded. One of the logical outcomes of the demand for economic equality is socialization of industry and, quote, agrarian reform, unquote. There are major steps in this direction already. The acreage limitation on irrigated <clears throat> the acreage limitation on irrigated farms, the Delta Ministry of the NCC, various federal policies, all point to quote agrarian reform unquote towards the communization of agriculture. And increasing socialist controls over industry are already in evidence. Quote, full equality, unquote, means that no differences can be tolerated with respect to race, color, creed, economics, and all things else. This means the planned destruction of the very elements of society who have made our civilization. The reduction of the Bill of Rights to a program of equalitarianism is to interpret the Bill of Rights as an instrument of socialistic revolution. But the Bill of Rights rests on a biblical foundation, its origin is in the demand for the respect for other men's life. Quote, thou shalt not kill, unquote. Home, quote, thou shalt not commit adultery, unquote. Property, quote, thou shalt not steal, unquote. And reputation, quote, thou shalt not bear false witness, unquote. In Newsletter 6, we discuss the origins of various other laws, including legal procedure and the Fifth Amendment in the Mosaic Law. Can we expect water to come out of a faucet when the reservoir is bone dry? Will a new faucet do the trick for us? To imagine such a possibility is ridiculous. But in essence, this is what people are demanding today. The American reservoir is dry. Spiritually, we are bankrupt. The overwhelming majority of Americans are content, with occasional grumblings, to remain in churches which are clearly apostate. They sit under pastors who know less Bible and doctrine than they do, which isn't much, and whose politics is the politics of revolution. Is our hope to be in such a people whose presence in such churches has the condemnation of Scripture? True. The American people are capable of getting angry now and then at election time. They don't like riots, obvious corruption, and other things, but a protest vote is not a reviving power.
Even the criminal syndicates resent corruption in their own ranks and liquidate thieves. Victory at election time is very important, but it is not the answer. Good plumbing is necessary in any building at any time, but it cannot take place of a reservoir. We need both the reservoir and the right kind of plumbing, religious, political, and educational. To place our hope in plumbing alone is both foolish and disastrous. The basic error of liberalism and socialism is environmentalism. Environmentalism holds that it is not man who is responsible for evil, but his environment, his family, school, culture, and economic condition. Change the environment and you will change man. As a result, environmentalists are very eager to win elections, change laws, and thereby remake man. To try to answer environmentalism by changing the environment is a surrender to their position. To believe this can be done means that we belong in the environmentalist camp. Our problem is this. The plumbing is in very bad shape. We do need new plumbing. In example, new politics, new churches, new schools, and so on, and we need these things urgently. But all these things are useless without the reservoir, the triune God. We need more faith and real faith, not the compromising position of men like Billy Graham nor the wicked standpatism of people who feel that if they grumble occasionally, God will bless their membership in apostate churches. Real faith makes a stand first and foremost in terms of the faith. Is there much of this? On the contrary, there is very little real faith. Even in the few separated and faithful churches, members move in terms of trifles, not in terms of faith. They leave because of a spat with Mrs. Jones or because they have found a church with a better choir or a better youth group. They move in terms of everything except faith, and they too shall be judged. The prospect then is one of judgment. But is that all? On the contrary, every time of judgment is also one of salvation, because when God judges the ungodly, He also moves to deliver His faithful saints. But most of all, the future is a glorious one because it is in the hands of God, not in the hands of men. Man proposes, but God disposes. As far back as the days of the flood and then the Tower of Babel, man planned a world of tyranny under man's humanistic world order. But God has confounded every plan of man to establish his humanistic world order, and his power is unchanged still. In this blessed season, therefore, as we look forward to the celebration of our Lord's Nativity, we can rejoice that the government of the universe is upon His shoulder, who is the, quote, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, unquote. Isaiah 9, 6. Let us stand in confidence, because it is He who governs us and is our Lord. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus the perfect sacrifice
was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. And if love he deserves, we should. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.